Listener Production. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. When you wave hello to a friend, reach for a cup of coffee or swipe between apps to press play on this podcast. Hundreds of electrical signals move from the tips of your fingers to the exact right place in the brain where metaphorical conversations like this are had. Ooh, that's a nice smelling cup of coffee. Okay, let's move the legs towards the smell. Account for position. Yep, one leg, the other leg. Ah, perfect. Now force and speed. Nope, too fast. We're not that eager for coffee, are we? Okay, maybe. Yes, we are. Now just reach down and contract the bicep. Expand the fingers and... Nope. Oh, too hot. Abort mission. Abort mission. These are the types of messages your nerves are constantly relaying back and forth between your brain and the rest of your body. But often we don't realise the importance of the nerves until something goes wrong. Nerves recover slowly, and maximal recovery may take many months or even years. And even with surgery, the best in the world even, there's no guarantee movement or feeling will be fully restored. So how then can a tiny strip of collagen drastically change patient outcomes? It actually might sound impossible, but cellular regeneration is the answer, and Regenerative medicine company Orthocell are the pioneers behind the technology. Technology giving movement and feeling back to their patients, like the feeling of a hug or holding a child's hand tight. It's the little things in life that bring us so much joy. Hi, I'm Zoe Callister-Hakewell and welcome to Beyond the Medicine Cabinet. Downhill skateboarding's, I guess, a little bit more on the extreme side of sports. You get into that crouch, tuck position, hands behind the, the, the backside. You know, you're in a streamlined position. You feel that wind sort of going past you. It's uh, usually fast speeds. You know, there's no other way to sort of describe it other than just purely being focused and in, in that singular moment, looking at the line, looking at the road, looking at what you're doing, mm. thinking about what your next movement's going to be coming into it. We wear, we wear gloves with, with these, uh, like, plastic plucks on the end of them. Mm-hmm. So you place those down on the ground to sort of slow down or to, to go through corners. Um, but it's all about speed. So, you know, my, my sort of uh, fastest that I've gone, about 73 k's, it literally kind of feels like as you kick in and the wind starts hitting, it literally feels like for me that all of those things that you've been thinking about or stressing about and everything is blown away and it's just a pure smile on your face and it's that in the moment run. When you're skating with your buddy, like, you, you know, you can put your hand on on a backside and give them a little bit of a nudge and push them on a bit faster or you, you zip around mm. and you, you and just sometimes at the bottom of those runs it's just that elation of, you know, of how good that, good that run was. Damien is a downhill skateboard rider, an all-round thrill seeker. When he wasn't teaching rock climbing at his own business you would find him going 50 kilometres face first down a mountain on wheels. Until three years ago, when an accident changed his life forever. Um, This day was a slow day, so it was only about, you know, 50-odd, 55 k's, but we were 
sort of racing, I guess, in, in is a way to describe it. Coming into elimination rounds of the uh, of the racing, and um, you know, because we don't have brakes as such, you know, we can stop pretty quickly on a on a, on a downhill skateboard. So, you know, you know, if you're doing 70k's, you could sort of stop within, you know, certainly well within 10 meters. But we were coming into corner, and I was going quicker than the guy in front of me, and uh, he checked me. So, which means that he sort of slipped out in front of me. I couldn't go through the corner properly because he'd put me in a really bad position. So I had to decide whether or not, you know, to commit through to that and put us both at risk or to blow lane, which means, you know, to, to cut across the lane and, and uh, disqualify myself from that, that racing. So I did that, but the problem was I, I hit um, the cat's eyes on the road, you know, the little reflector lights. Yeah. My board launched from under me um, and I managed to stay on it, but I couldn't get into the crouch position to be able to get my glove on the ground to slide through the corner, to slow down through the corner. Uh. So I had to stand up through the corner. So, yeah, we've collided. And the natural thing in in downhill skateboarding is you use your pucks whenever you stack it. So your hands Mm. go out in front of you. But the problem was I was in a swan dive inverted position. So I came straight down on my hands into my shoulder and and scone. So I badly dislocated the shoulder. I knew I was in a pretty bad way. Wound up laying on the road waiting for an ambulance for about an hour and a half, nearly two hours. Oh, that must have been excruciating. It was the mental anguish, like the pain was okay, but it was the waiting and not knowing what was happening. When the ambulance finally came, Damien was taken to the hospital and administered a heavy dose of painkillers. And then had to wait for all those drugs to wear off at the hospital. Right. And then they put my shoulder back in and it was at that point that I looked at all the doctors and said, so, you know, I can't move my, I can't move my arm. So it was at that point that, that you know, obviously the alarm bell started, started ringing. You know, everything from my, my shoulder down, it was a lump of dead wood, dead weight. Whoa. I couldn't, couldn't move anything. Among other injuries, Damien had crushed his radial nerve, the nerve responsible for moving his triceps, bending his wrists and moving his fingers, as well as a whole lot more. Luckily for Damien, it was not torn off his spine. Damien was told, however, that he might not ever get movement back in his arm again. But that all changed when he found Dr. Alex O'Burn. Hi, my name's Alex O'Burn. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Perth, and I help look after the reconstruction for severely injured people. And that's mainly with nerves. So how did you meet Damien? Damien's one of your patients, I understand. Damien is, have you, he's quite an action he is action, action man. Episode. Yes, I've spoken to him. He very much is. <laughs> he's go, go, go. And he yeah. pushes his body to the limit. Anyway, he injured his arm, injured it quite badly, and he damaged the nerves, the nerves that moved his wrists and his fingers. And it was, wasn't just in one spot. It was actually damaged over an area. So this is not something we could just sew back together. It wasn't something that was going to heal by itself. So we used a new technique where we, splice the damaged nerve into a healthy nerve. To make that join, we use this this collagen wrap, this this nerve joining technology. I think historically um, doctors and surgeons have been armed with nuts and bolts and scalpels and, and sutures to try and repair damaged human soft tissue, if you like. And it's been shown that not all surgery is ultimately successful. I mean, I, I think surgery is a great thing and it, it works very well in 
a large number of cases, but some tissues uh, need a little bit of a hand. Some tissues need some further guidance. So regenerative medicine is about applying um, biological or natural elements to that healing process, be it in surgery or outside of surgery. And indeed, some of the regenerative medicine approaches are about avoiding surgery. This is Paul Anderson. He's the CEO of OrthoCell, and they're responsible for the invention of a product called Remplia, a collagen-based scaffold, sometimes referred to as a membrane. It's a stable mechanism for delivering stem cells in an operative technique. And pioneering that operative technique is Dr Alex O'Byrne, who has been leading the surgical development. And Paul, well, he's bridging that gap between research and clinical practice. The product that we've developed is what's called a bilayer structure. On the surface, it has very tight bundles of collagen, and those tight bundles of collagen stop other tissue growing into it. Mm-hmm. It stops adhesions, as it's called, or scar tissue buildup. And then the underside of the membrane or the scaffold is rougher, and you can actually see the collagen fibres on the surface. So one's rough and one's smooth. Right. Smooth is designed to be cellular occlusive, meaning keeping the cells and the tissue out. And the other side is designed to integrate with the tissue and the cellular level. And importantly, um, what happens though is that there's these small holes on the surface of the, of the, the, the tight bundles and the shiny surface, the um, tight bundled surface, It allows bioactive molecules and proteins or what's known as growth factors Mm -hmm. to travel in between. And so what this membrane does in a broad sense when used in a nerve repair sense is that it's designed to act like the outside edge of the nerve, which is called epineurium. And that epineurial tissue provides a barrier to the outside world but also creates an environment for the axions to grow and to live and to heal and to, to, to be functioning as an active nerve. So our membrane is designed to mimic the epineural surface. Mm-hmm. So it's bilayer. The outside keeps the soft tissue away and stops it from gluing up and sticking down. The inside integrates in with the tissue and provides what we sort of describe as an elegant railway track for the tissue to grow across. So what we're creating is a barrier, but also, just as importantly, what we describe as a bioactive chamber. So you're keeping the rich goodies that are inside a damaged tissue that are trying to heal it inside the bioactive chamber, yet allowing it to communicate with the outside world. And so this is regenerative medicine concepts here that we're applying to a medical device of a collagen nature to enhance a tissue repair that provides the surgeon with an easier way to do the operation and more consistent and predictable outcomes for the patient and for the surgeon. There are billions of nerve cells or neurons in the human body controlling those complicated processes like movement. Our age and other risk factors all affect the pace at which our nerves degrade and they can't divide or replace themselves either. Tell me some of the common injuries that you would see as a clinician coming through your doors. On Monday, we saw 27 people. They usually are about six weeks or so post-injury, and we see a variety of things. So we saw two people had come off motorbikes 
and had completely pulled all the nerves out of their neck, so they had <gasps> no function in their arms. Oh, my gosh. We saw three people that had had spinal cord injuries from simple things such as falling down some stairs, mm. diving in a pool, and we saw one person who'd been playing soccer and they dislocated their knee and tore the nerves from their knee so they couldn't mm. move their foot anymore. So I typically see the people with their injuries several weeks or months afterwards. And then we've got to work out how we're going to put them back together again. You mentioned before that through some of these accidents that people's nerves can be pulled out of their limbs. First of all, I think it's a common misconception that you can't even see nerves. What do nerves look like? Very good question. I always like to think of nerves as the electrical system of the human body uh, with your main computer being your brain. And the brain is one just, just one big nerve with the main conduit coming down through your spinal cord and different cables coming out at each spinal cord level. And then they go to various parts of the body. So when we're looking at the nerves as they exit the spinal cord, they are often about nine millimetres and it's a cable wrapped inside a cable wrapped inside a cable. So when we open up the outer layer of the nerve, which you call the epineurum, there's an inner layer and there's lots of bundles of, of fibres. So when we get down to the microscopic level, then they're about 30 nanometres, the cell. But the other interesting thing is the nerves are really big. They're the largest cell in the body. So it's quite a big structure. And each nerve will supply either five or ten muscle fibres, or they might supply feeling to temperature. So they have lots of little functions. I don't know how the body does it, but they somehow manage to travel together but be separate, and then once they get to the brain, go to all the right spots. I, it's, it's incredible. So what do they look like? They're white, they're shiny, they're in lots of little layers, and then the nerve itself has blood vessels, it's got protective connective tissue, which is the, the cushioning. It has conductors in there. We call them Schwann cells, as well as the actual nerve fibre and the cabling. And so what the surgeons traditionally have done to repair these nerves that have been severed and cut is that they will get a needle and thread and they will suture that nerve back together again. Mm. But unfortunately, when you do that, you're plunging a needle and yeah. the thread into the nerve that you're trying to heal. And the suture itself that you use, whilst fairly benign, does have an inflammatory response with the tissue. And so what we've shown and what others have shown is that where that suture goes through the nerve, it creates scar tissue. And that scar tissue impedes the healing of the nerve tissue and that results in unpredictable and inconsistent outcome. This product will degrade inside the body commensurate with the healing process within the body. So you don't want this scaffold to be there too long because it gets in the way and it gets encapsulated and stops a healthy regenerative process. You don't want it to be there for too short amount of time mm -hmm. because it, it doesn't do its job. It doesn't allow it to heal. So the membrane itself degrades between, you know, a, a three to five-month period, um, providing support for the, for the um, regenerating tissue and the healing process. Clinically, we're matching our results to the results in Melbourne, Sydney, in the US, and our results are at least as good, if not 
better than the top surgeons. But this technique means that someone without 20 years of training under a microscope can get the same results with only one or two years of training. So it just opens this up to a wider group of surgeons so we can bring this technique to more people that need it. One of those people that needed it was, of course, Damien. He secured the last spot on OrthoCell's clinical trial for Remplia, and in 2019, he underwent that surgery. All in all, Damien was in the hospital for a couple of days. Do you remember if it was painful? Uh, it was nerves, so yeah, yeah, they yeah. they they tend to tell you all about it. Um, yeah. But you know, Alex said to me, you know, look, if you can hack it, don't don't have any painkillers because it affects the, the recovery, the recoveries. Um, <gasps> and so I didn't have any painkillers throughout any of that 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 process. What was that like? Because it's nerve damage, it's just firing off on on anything and everything, and and in all kinds of weird ways. Yeah, um, you know, and 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 now I don't have really any nerve pain at all. What does that feel like when you say nerve pain? Is it like it's fire? Hard. Is it like cold? Is it pins and needles? It's hard to describe, eh? It's like all of those things. It's quite a bizarre sensation. Like, you know, you, you've you ever slept on your arm and had a had a had a pins and needles in your arm and feel yes. like you can't move it? It's it's <gasps> That's much, the worst. Yeah, it's much, much worse than that. Like it's oh. it is a dead heavy, heavy weight. The nerve to the muscles isn't working, so you can't move that muscle. So you lose mobility maybe a little bit less obvious. You also lose the connection to all those senses. So you can't feel something, whether it's hot or cold, whether it's rough or smooth, whether you're pushing on it just a little bit of pressure or a lot of pressure. And that, that's also very important. Other way it affects is, is pain. A nerve injury, a lot of people suffer severe pain. Now, if we can repair the nerve, then it restores function so they can move again. It enables them to feel and interact with their environment around them. At the time, my daughter was two. Oh, um, of course. And, you know, couldn't change a nappy, couldn't couldn't towel myself down properly even mm. out of a shower. So, you know, all that independence and everything was gone and, you know, a lot of pressure came onto my wife at that time, picking up the pieces around it. We were, you know, waiting to see what and if any recovery was going to come come about from that time. So, yeah, we went away that weekend, went down south and switched off for a little bit, then went back to work and spoke to my team at the time. I was like, you know, I can't really function in my job anymore, um, you know, because we were, we were teaching climbing and instructing mm. and, yeah, I was running the business and there's that administrational side. Even that was affected. It's funny because you don't often consider the fact that, yes, it is the individual that does go through a significant adjustment, in your case, losing a substantial amount of independence, which is hard to adjust to for you because you're such an independent person and used to being so active. But we often forget that, you know, your loved ones around you and in your case, your wife, who, you know, they have to step up and support even more. Mm. Did that have a bit of a strain on your relationship at all or was it okay? Yeah, it did. Yeah. Is, is the short answer. Mm. You know, Em Emma had to take on a hell of a lot more. She's, you know, she works in a professional environment, had her own own stresses, but then she's got, you know, it's hard enough with, with young kids and family. Of course. But then you get this, you know, added task of, of having to do more mm. and then having to deal with somebody who thinks that they are handling the loss of independence fairly mm. well, mm. but in reality probably wasn't handling it as well as what I, as what I thought. 
So this obviously required a very rigorous research process. So what, what did that look like for you guys? Wow. Okay. So I think we started this project nearly 10 years ago. The average time it takes to get medical devices of this nature to the market is between anywhere between eight and 12 years. Uh, it's a long journey. And if people do ask me about what are some of the key elements involved here, and I say, oh, there's tenacity and there's good science, right? Yeah. So, so from a nice. good science perspective to answer your question, yes, we, we had to go through um, different incarnations of the, of the development. We started with multiple different tissue types. Uh, we then had multiple different chemical combinations that we used to try and treat the, the collagen, mm. protect the collagen, maintain its structure uh, without destroying it. And then we're able to assess efficacy. Does it work in an animal model? Mm-hmm. And then once you're able to test it from a preclinical perspective, we were also at the same time making sure that we had a safe product from a manufacturing perspective, meaning that mm-hmm. we're testing for viruses, we're removing all heavy metals. So there's a whole range of manufacturing style work mm. that was done in combination with preclinical work and bench work that then enabled us to apply for an ethics committee applications to then begin the clinical trial scenarios. So if we were to get more into that regulatory process, what were some of the mm. other hurdles that you would have to overcome coming from where you did with this particular product? To move a product like this through that clinical phase, into the clinical phase and, and then into a regulatory phase, you need to have a manufacturing process that is quality assured, that is quality controlled, that enables ultimate traceability uh, and enables you to be in control of your processes, that has checks and balances and validations along the way that enable you to put your hand on your chest with some confidence and say, this is a safe product and it meets the regulatory approval scenarios. And so once you prepare yourself for that and get yourself into position and you don't, you can't buy that really. You have to, you have to develop it. You have to customize it to your own manufacturing processes, your own tissue types, using the broad guidance from the, the, the regulatory bodies to guide you. So that quality system then enables you to gain a manufacturing license mm-hmm. and, and we at OrthoCell now have license to manufacture products for the FDA, uh, the European community, the EU Great. and the TGA and that now is also spills over from the TGA into some of the Asian countries as well. Uh, so that then enables you to apply to have your product approved for marketing approval Mm-hmm. And then you are essentially able to um, say it's safe, it's tolerable, it works, and we can market it. So it's been a long journey, mm. and certainly our latest results show that we can get good results in about 80% of people, mm. which if you go back 30 years ago with these sort of injuries, people were anywhere of 30% or more was considered good. Amazing. And this technology means that initially when this sort of stuff happens, only like one or two surgeons in each centre can do that. Mm. Now this with this technology, anyone can do it. Now if we can repair the nerve, then it restores function so they can move again. And the final thing is, is improvement in pain. And one of the first signs we see that these nerve repairs are working is the pain seems to drop. And they mm. come off all their medications. So sometimes they're on lots of morphine or oxycontin and all these other pain-modifying drugs, and they're almost like zombies. 
And then as their pain goes, they come off all these drugs and they say, it's, oh, I feel like I'm in the real world again. How did it feel when you eventually did get back to that recovery phase of being able to use your hand again? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's just life-changing. You know, it goes from, you know, being, you know, you can't, you can't touch top, you can't, you can't go to the bathroom properly on your own to being able to being back into, you know, your own independent person again. And, you know, we run some competitions at, for climbing out of the out of the gym and I I participated in, in one of the comps about a year after the, the injury, you know, and that was on what we call lead climbing. So that's where you, you, you're taking your rope up and clipping, clipping into the systems yourself. But, uh, yeah, it was unreal to be able to do that again. Um, uh, you know, it's sort of <laughs> you're embracing your old, old lifestyle back again, which, mm. you, you know, you kind of commit yourself to say, well, I'm just never going to be able to do those things again. And then you're giving it back on a silver platter. It's pretty, pretty humbling. Mm. And you sort of lose all your ego as well. You don't, <laughs> don't care how much you're performing or how well you're climbing anymore because you're just you're doing stuff again. So an injury where we thought we couldn't restore movement to his wrist and hand, it slowly came back. And it was amazing watching him like the first week, no, nothing's happened. And then six weeks, not something happened. Then three months, oh, my, I, I got something, got something. Then gradually over six months, he could move his whole hand and then he got stronger and stronger as time went on. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Incredible that you were able to restore mobility to his arm. How does that feel for you as a surgeon? Oh, there's nothing that brings you more joy and more pleasure than seeing someone when they're broken and all hope seems lost, then us being able to intervene and then watching their their soul and their life come back again as they as they recover. Um, that's the best feeling in the world, mm. knowing that you've been able to give someone back their life or their passion. Mm. Particularly someone like Damien, who very much is motivated by being so active and is into skateboarding and rock climbing and, you know, it gives him his purpose in life. It's incredible yes. that you're able to be the person to give that back to him. Oh, I'll, and just to say, it's this whole team event. And yeah. It is a wonderful experience that we have all the, the technology and the backing of the hospitals that we mm. can do this to anybody in, in Western or in Australia. You know, the, the, the breadth and, and depth of impact that we've had on patients is profound. And I'll give you one example. Um, so one of our patients that was lucky enough to receive uh, what's called nerve transfer surgery. So this is where he's a quadriplegic patient or tetraplegic. Um, he can still breathe, mm. but he wasn't able to use his hands. And when we first met um, the patient, he was wheeled in to the doctor's surgery by his wife. 18 months after that surgery, I invited him down to our office to talk to our staff. And he came down to our office driving his own car his own retrofitted car. You know, he pulled up into our, our drive at, at the office and we walked out there and I walked out with Alex. So he was driving the car? He drove the car. Wow. Right? And then, and then he, he opens the door and I said, you know, do you need a hand? He said, nope, thanks. <laughs> and he proceeded to unload himself from the car and wheel himself into our offices where he, where he, he, he was introduced to our staff. There was not a dry eye in the house, including himself. You know, these are the type of impacts that this surgery can have. And these are the type of impacts that this product can have on that surgery. Um, greater consistency of outcome, predictability, 
and regaining mobility to paralyzed limbs, enabling them to be more mentally healthy, to be able to be independent, to transfer themselves, to feed themselves, to toilet themselves, Mm. to hug their children. Phenomenal outcomes. Improving patient outcomes is at the heart of what OrthoCell does, but they're also providing pathways for budding young scientists to explore careers in other areas of the industry too. I actually did want to touch a little bit more on some of those options that you have within your company for employment because I think a lot of people do come out of university with a science degree with the understanding that potentially working in a lab is the only option if they don't Mm. continue on to do something else. But I think what's really great about your company is that it's very clear that you can apply those skills across industry and so many other different roles. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's um, a deeply satisfying piece of what we do. I mean, you know, producing a product from a concept, an idea. Mm. One of the adjuncts to that is watching um, young science graduates come to us Uh, and we do internships uh, every year and we have people from the east coast of the US come out. We've had six interns from the US. But a a large number of our staff have been internally developed and obviously you need to bring in expertise as well. But, you know, my my production manager is is started as a a, a production scientist. Mm. Um, Our quality director started with me in another job, in another company 15 years ago. And so we're very proud of the fact that we provide a multidisciplinary pathway for science graduates. And when science graduates leave, you know, the university, you know, do they think that they can play a role uh, in industry doing, you know, production work? I'm not sure they do. So, and so what we've tried to do internally but also externally is work with the universities to provide education opportunities to uh, undergraduates and graduates in understanding that there's a whole wide world out there to generate a career outside of the standard um, research career. And there's nothing wrong with that standard research career. I no. applaud all those people. But yeah. for those that don't, don't, don't really want to go down that pathway, where do they go? And I think also it is about exposure for those recent graduates because there's very defined roles in our society, you know, that you can be, you know, a lawyer or a doctor and and those are all very amazing jobs and disciplines that one can pursue. Mm. But I think amongst that, it's also really important to sort of highlight and push forward that there are other options that could be just as equally satisfying for an individual um, to pursue. So I think it's great that you've put so much emphasis on that as well and really tried to work with universities to, to highlight that. Mm. I mean, I think what we try and do as a company is be a high-performance company. Mm. Um, and to be a high-performance company, you need to provide opportunities for growth. And I'm just as proud of every person that's worked for my company that's now working for other companies because mm. I know that we've played a role in that. And yeah. I know that we've, we've contributed to not just the development of our company, to not just the development of the individual's expertise, uh, but to an ecosystem of, you know, biotherapeutics, regenerative medicine, mm. Um, medical device manufacturer, you know, um, biotechnology, whatever you want to call it. Um, but we've contributed to that ecosystem and that's very dear to my heart is not mm. just developing products but making sure that we can develop and contribute to the ecosystem uh, that proliferates opportunities in this country 
that also adds to the net national benefit. And what Orthocell has planned for the future is almost just as impressive as what they've already achieved. What's next for Orthocell? Well, it's a, it's a really exciting phase for us. Um, I mean, I think um, you may be aware that we've recently signed an exclusive licence and distribution agreement with one of the largest dental companies in the world. Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a $23.1 million licence fee. Uh, we will manufacture uh, the product for our partner and that partner um, has access to the global uh, dental business uh, that we use one of our collagen membranes for guided bone regeneration. It assists in the regeneration of human bone, uh, very similar in concept to the nerve but different in its application. Um, and so 85% of the global dental market is held by five companies and we've just done a deal with one of those five companies. Wow. So that provides us with um, a wonderful validation of the platform technology. Absolutely. It provides us with the ability to scale up our operations and we're now scaling up from 10,000 units per year to 110,000 units per year. And so um, we're embarking now on the, um, preparing for product launch, uh, partnering in the, for distribution in this country and really making an impact um, with that, that nerve product, Remplier, um, to give us a foundation to make a global impact. Maybe sometime in the future you might use this product to help connect a severed nerve mm. to a, a electrical cable that then goes to a computer that runs your bionic leg or something. What advice would you give to other young budding entrepreneurs who are looking to get into this space? Yeah. <laughs> um, look, I, I mean, I think that um, what's important is is good mentoring. Um, they can guide you, they can settle you, they can calm you, and they can help you through the difficult times that you will face. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you face those difficult times. Mm. I think, um, as I mentioned before, a healthy dose of tenacity is really required. And even sometimes a little dose of naivety doesn't go too far (laughs) away either. Be bold and be proud of what you're doing. Uh, Articulate it well. Immerse yourself in whatever it is that you're doing. Become an expert in your field and and, and that will serve you very well. Do you think Mm. technology like this should be available to everyone? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's um, it's completely changed the the prospects of what I was looking at from uh, from that injury. You know, the the orthocell product itself, the Alex O'Byrne and, and his team, and uh, what they've done. You know, just you know, just simple functions. You know, just uh, can't thank them enough for for everything that's gone on. And 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 I'm not the only one that has had that benefit. You know, mm. um, so it's yeah, it's it's fantastic. Orthocell has given Damien more than just his movement back. It's given him back his purpose too, with knock-on effects extending beyond just himself, but also to his family. Innovations like Orthocell exemplify what modern-day medical innovation can be, harnessing technology of the 21st century with some of the country's brightest scientific, clinical and business brains to enhance the quality of life for patients and people everywhere. Beyond the Medicine Cabinet is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Kuyong Group. Hosted by me, Zoe Callister-Hakewell. Audio by Kelly Falston and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.